So let's continue on. We'll be in uh, 1 Kings 21 this morning. And uh, I would ask you to stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. I'm going to kind of talk through the rest of it as we go through the sermon. 1 Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid out on his bed and turned away his face and would, not, would eat no food. Verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, uh, I will not give you my vineyard. Verse 7, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you, now, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, so we've got a, sim- a familiar cast of characters here. Uh, we've got Ahab, Jezebel. We're going to see Elijah come on the scene here in a little while as the prophet that intercedes or comes and brings the word of the Lord. And we've got a new character here, a guy named Naboth, who is the unfortunate neighbor of Ahab. Not a good neighbor to have. You think you have a bad neighbor, having Ahab as your neighbor is much worse. And so Ahab wants his cultivated vineyard, which is his inheritance, his ancestral inheritance. And Ahab wants to turn it into a veggie garden because it's close to his house. And he just wants what is not his. And as we're going to see, Ahab should understand that what is Naboth's is not his and he has no right to it. And what he is asking is not something that Naboth can permit because the Lord has forbidden it. And Naboth says that. He says in verse 3, The Lord forbid that I should give you this land. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because real estate is not like it is now. People didn't just put for sale signs in the yard and buy and sell to try to make money and advance themselves. It was different in this time because this was the promised land of the people of Israel. And when they came in under Joshua and took possession of the land according to God's will and a land given to them uh, throughout time, And they broke up the land in very specific patterns and ways in order to give each tribe and each clan and each family a certain amount of land so that there was equity in what was divided up. And from that time on, the inheritance of each tribe and clan was to be strictly kept in that tribe and clan. There's a number of verses we could look at, but Leviticus 25, 23 talks about this. It says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. And what was meant there as we look at the overall happenings of the Old Testament is that if someone got into a desperate need and needed to sell their land because of poverty, they could do that, but then they were to redeem that land. They were to try to buy it back. And we talked about this some when we went through the book of Ruth, that the land that was in their family was to be redeemed. And we talked about a redeemer and went through some of this stuff back then. But if a person could not 
ever buy back their land, there was something called the year of Jubilee. At the end of 50 years, there was supposed to be a reshuffling of the deck to get it back to the way that it was beforehand so that there was equity between the peoples and God's intention of how the land was to be divided up would be back to the way that it was. And it seems that God's working in this is to create a equitable land distribution in an agrarian society. Everybody needed some land to live. And so under this system, everybody would have a bit. And the rich and the powerful would not be able to take over everything. And so Nabal, Naboth excuse me, uh, is obeying God by saying, I, I, this is my ancestral land. This is, the, this is the land given to me by the will of God, through my fathers, and no, I, I can't give it to you or sell it to you, even though you're the king, and even though you want it, I'm not going to give it to you. But this does not satisfy Ahab. And Ahab goes home, and he is angry, and he is sulking. It seems like a child lays down on his bed and turns over and won't, won't talk to anybody. We've all seen that in our, in our little kids at one point or another. But his heart is full of covetousness. And it's important to understand what this is. Covetousness is one of the most neglected of all the Ten Commandments. And so we need to understand what it means to covet. The Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, 17, when God gives these ten commands that are to reside over all mankind, that guide us for all time because we need to understand each one of them, very seldom do we look at the last one. You shall not covet. What does it mean to covet? Covet does not mean that you are just seeking to advance yourself or to better your life. It means that you want what someone else rightfully has, and you want it for yourself. And you begin to scheme and think about how it is that you might have your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's, as it says in the Old Testament, your neighbor's servant or animals. And it just kind of multiplies it out to anything that someone else may have that you look at and you are jealous of them, and you begin to want in your heart what they have, and you start to scheme as to how it is that you might take it for yourself. It is a desire that is the exact opposite of the biblical virtue of contentment and thankfulness. In the New Testament, we're often called to thankfulness, to give thanks to God, and to be content with what God has given us. We can never actually truly sit down at the table and say, thank you, Lord, for what you've given to me if you are discontent. If rolling around in the bottom of your heart, you are not thankful for what you have, and you really want what somebody else has, you may be saying with your mouth that you're giving thanks, but you're really not. And so as a Christian, we are striving to be content with what God has given to us. And this doesn't mean that we can't press on to seek other things, but we must be satisfied in the place where we are. And it's really, really important to understand that covetousness has nothing to do with whether we are poor or whether we are rich. Look at this passage. What's the, this is the King Ahab. The guy's got everything. He's the richest person in the whole kingdom, and he still wants what? More. He wants more. He wants what is not his. And so a person can have very little and covet things they don't have, and a person can have very much and also insatiably covet what other people have. And so it is a condition of the soul, a spiritual condition of the soul, that we are striving by God's grace to beat down. God help me to be content. God help me to be thankful for the things that I have. 
God, help me not to covet the things that I don't have. And it's a spiritual struggle, just like lying and cheating and being faithful to your spouse and putting God in the first place. All these various other moral commands are all spiritual struggles. And so we should be asking God to help us to not be a covetous person. I think the command against covetousness teaches us at least three things that are are important also that I want to touch on this morning. The first thing that the command of God against covetousness speaks to us is it speaks to the reality of personal property. And you may be like, Vic, why are you talking about that? What does that have to do with anything on Sunday morning? Well, personal property is interesting because if we are allowed to, when we buy something or given something or earn something and it becomes ours, then these other moral laws follow along behind it. That I can't then go, if I go take what is yours, it's called stealing and it's morally wrong. Why is that? Because it actually belonged to you. And if I covet what is yours rightfully, I am wrong to covet it. And so this is based upon the reality that we actually own things and that we then have the right to give them to other people and there's goodness in giving it to them and it creates a system of buying and selling and it's something that is morally related to the character of God that actually produces goodness in society. These things are all connected and interlinked together. And so it is wrong to take something by force. Ahab, and as we'll see Jezebel, is wrong to go and forcibly take what is not theirs. And the second thing that the command against covetousness does is that it it emphasizes that the marriage covenant is exclusive. We should not miss out on the reality that one of the things that, that that command says is do not covet your neighbor's wife, which means that the marriage covenant is closed, it's exclusive, and it is to last a lifetime. And when we are desiring to do something different, seeking to get, get rid of or seek something that is not ours, something that is out of bounds, that is wrong. And it is right for us to look at this. And when we see our heart wandering or going towards something that is not what is ours and something that is not part of what we have made a covenant towards, we draw back from it and realize that it's not right to ruminate on that in our heart. And the third thing the command against covetousness does is it works to preserve relationships. What do I mean by that? Because as soon as you start to covet anything that someone else has, whether it's their car or their, I don't know, they're younger, it's their Lego set or whatever it may be, as soon as you start to covet something that someone else has, your relationship with them is going to start going downhill because you cannot look them in the eye. You can't love them the way that you should because you have a a sinful desire against them. You seek something that they have, and you're going to start, if you don't cut it off by the grace of God, you're going to start working in ways to undermine them that you might either take their position or take something that they have. And so by not coveting what other people have, it preserves and strengthens our relationships. Because we see this in the life of Ahab. When he gives vent to covetousness and he starts showing his, his, his desire to have what Naboth has that he can't have, it begins to work against Naboth and it begins to destroy a relationship that seems to be functional prior to that. It allows a murderous plot to unfold that he might get what he is coveting. So if we go to verses 8 through 14 that we have not read yet, What we see is a plot unfold. Jezebel says, I'll go get that piece of land for you. And what does she do? 
She writes forged letters in his name and uh, in Ahab's name and creates a, a fake gathering. And at that fake gathering, they have two false accusers stand up and say, yeah, Naboth has cursed God and the king. And they have an immediate kangaroo trial and they take him out and they stone him in the street. And that's the end of Naboth. Like, wow, what just happened here? This is unbelievable. But she plots against him and undoes him and kills this man through a false means. And then in verses 15 and 16, it says this, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Completely complicit. Man, that's great news. The guy's dead. Well, I'm going to go take what I wanted. Using his power to do something that is greatly evil. But what I want you to see here is the progression of things. Things like this don't just happen in his life or in your life. What first starts up is evil desire. There's an evil desire of some sort in your heart that takes root. And it begins, you don't cut it off. You let it stay there. In some ways, we cultivate evil desires. We nurse them, and they begin to grow in our heart. And anger grows in his heart. And then there's a plot. And then out of the plot comes actual sin, and then death, and then taking of what he thinks is his, and he thinks it's going to be great. We looked at this in the men's Bible study this past week. The first example of this in the Bible is the character of Cain. Cain is an archetypal character of, of evil in the Bible. And he does the same exact thing. He and Abel come and make sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord accepts Abel's and does not accept Cain. And what is Cain's reaction to that? It's anger. What's the matter with God? Why won't he accept what, what I brought him? He should like what I brought him. And God comes to him in mercy and says, hey, sin is coming up around you. Anger is crouching at the door, and it's going to master you if you don't stop, if you don't do something different. And instead of hearing the Lord's warning, he continues to nurse anger in his heart, and that anger turns into a plot. And the plot looks for opportunity. And when there's opportunity, he takes a stone and rises up and kills his brother in the field and then hides him and thinks maybe he's done with this thing and got his brother out of the way. But the Lord always sees, as we're going to see in this passage. And God comes to him and says, the blood of your brother is calling out to me. What has happened here? And he gives him the, the sassy remark of, who am I? to be my brother's keeper. I don't know where he is. And judgment comes upon Cain, and he's the first example of what it means to not repent of sin, but to give vent to it and continue to follow in its path until it becomes something real and physical and destructive, and there are lifelong consequences. And we see it in our day and age. Every once in a while, we'll see something break out in the news. Some person goes and goes on some murderous spree, or you hear of someone that you know of that, is, that goes into some type of an adulterous relationship, leaves all their kids and walks away from everything, or some thief that steals some great amount of money, and you think, man, how often have you heard in those interviews, how did the person seem like a great person to me? I don't, I don't, I don't know where this came from. None of us saw this coming. Well, you didn't see it coming. Why? because it was taking place in their heart. I can guarantee that none of these plots just came out of nowhere. 
There was something that was going on in the heart that was not cut off. This is why when we are told to consider the things that are sinful, that are in our heart and mind, as if they are the real thing, is because they will become the real thing if we do not stop them, if we do not cut them off and pray that God would give us a new heart and a new mind. Plotting in the heart sinful things will break out into sinful action if we do not cut it off. And so in verse 16, he goes down to take possession of what is now his by lies and murder. And he thinks it's good. Man, I, I'm just, you know, he's laying it out. You know, I'm going I'm to have these veggies over here and this over here. Probably calling the workmen in, starting to get the estimates. But God will not be mocked. And your sins will find you out. God will cause it to be found out. Some people wrongly call this karma. There is no such thing as karma, but there is such thing as a sovereign God. And what God does is he causes our sins to be found out. We may lay the most perfect plans for things not to be found out, and God causes something to happen for your sin to be found out. Over and over and over and over, I have experienced this with people and in my own life. And what we need to see from this passage is that it is, in fact, a mercy. Because if our sins were never found out, we would never be faced by them, and we would never come to this crisis of belief as to whether or not we are going to repent and believe. We would just go straight into damnation, headlong, because we are never convicted of our sins. And so God calling us to account and helping us to see our sins is a mercy from the Lord. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. That is really scary to me, folks. I'm a sinner. And when I look at my life, I know I'm a sinner. And if it were not for the grace of Jesus Christ covering me, that the, the, the eyes of Almighty God sees every single thing that I do, there would be no hope. But in the grace of Christ, we are covered, we are welcomed in, we are forgiven by Jesus. We're going to talk about this a lot more here in just a moment. But without that, we are deceiving ourselves if we think that God does not know our actions. And you may be one of those people this morning that has some deep hidden secret, that has something that you have been keeping to yourself for a long time, and you think that no one will ever know because you have laid careful plans that no one will ever find out. You need to understand that God knows every single detail of your life. And that is really important to not forget. In verse 17, the way the Lord exposes the sin of Ahab is through the prophet Elijah. Elijah, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. He doesn't know what's going on here. But God comes to him in verse 17 and says, Arise, go meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Wow, this is, this is like really powerful stuff here. This is, God is very serious. He has had enough of this king. And we've been talking for weeks about the compounded wickedness of this king in every possible way. And we have reached the end of the road. Like God is done with extending more time to this king. And so he sends Elijah to Ahab to expose his sin, to proclaim, as we'll see later in verses, a death sentence on Jezebel, and to proclaim an end to the kingdom that he has and to his rule. God is done with Ahab. And he's sending someone to tell him. 
these things. And I want you to understand that probably the least joyful part of the job that I have as a pastor is calling you out in your sin and addressing the sin in my own heart. But it is a part of the actual role that I have as a minister and as a preacher to have a prophetic role. And part of that is this Old Testament prophetic role to speak about sin and to say things that cause you to stir in your heart and not be able to overlook sin in your own life. It's something that I don't enjoy. It's something I don't believe Elijah enjoyed, going and having to face down kings and other people and tell them about their sin. But it's a part of what God's plan has always been, that God reveals to us what is going on in our own life, that we might change and that we might see the door of grace that is open to us in the Lord God and there might be a hope of repentance. And so apart from Christ and his salvation by grace, we are all under a sentence of death. Apart from the grace of God, there is only hell and there is the reality of hell. Hell is just as real as heaven. God is just and there is real vengeance and there is real wrath. We see this in the life of Jezebel. She is the unrepentant part of this situation. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I'm saying what I'm saying this morning because I don't want to see any of you in that situation. I want you to understand above all things as you leave this place today that the grace of God is open to you. And when our repentance is true and our faith is real, there is radical forgiveness and there is new life where there was once death. And you're going to see a shocking thing in this passage. I don't know if you've ever read this passage before, but you're getting ready to see something fascinating. But what happens with Jezebel is there is no repentance in her heart ever. If you flip forward to 2 Kings chapter 9, you're going to see that her wickedness, her mocking, her scheming never ends. And she hates God to the very end. And the prophetic word about her that she will die in a way that is uh, without burial, without honor, comes to pass. But the fascinating thing about this passage is what happens in verses 27 and 29. Because Elijah comes and he says these things to Ahab. And what happens in verses 27 through 29 is not what you would expect to happen at all. What happens? When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went out dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And so we see repentance in the life of Ahab. I wonder how, when I remember I first read across this, I'm like, this can't be right. Like, there's got to be something wrong about this story. This guy can't, how can this guy have repented of his sins? Because Ahab's the guy, oh, he's always the evil one. Like, he's the, the archetype of evil and the kings. But yet he repents authentically of his sins. And it's recognized by God. Go, go look again at Ahab. Look at what he's doing to humble himself before me and repent of his sins. A turning away from evil ways is repentance. It is an about face. It is not just saying different words, but it's doing different things. And it's seeking a different direction in life that you realize that your actions and the things that you have been harboring in your heart, planning, or actually doing are evil. 
And that evil is against the Lord, and that evil is going to destroy you, others around you, and you've got to stop. And so repentance is something that is given to us by God. It is a gift, and we turn away from our sin. We seek mercy, and then God grants mercy. Ahab is one of the two great examples of this. One of the other astonishing examples of this in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter 4. A lot of people read about Daniel and they read about King Nebuchadnezzar and all of his evil and they read about the the fiery furnace and they read about the the lion's den and they skip over the part of him being driven out into the wilderness because of his tremendous pride. But then one day he recognizes who God is and he humbles himself and he comes back and gives glory to God and lives in a different way. It is a story of tremendous repentance. And so this morning I would tell you That if God will have mercy on Ahab and Nebuchadnezzar, he will have mercy on any sinner, including you and including me. And I want to ask you a question. Because over and over when I talk to people about this, especially some people that don't know Christ as their Savior, they say, that really bothers me. I'm 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 not cool with that. Like, how could God forgive a child molester? How could God forgive these people? What is going on here? I can't, I can't accept a, I can't be a part of a religion where really evil people are forgiven. Does that bother you? Does that, does that affect you in the same way? Because the answer of how all these wicked people, which include you and me, can be forgiven is the cross of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is by grace alone. And I want to walk you through this a little bit in this beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 2. That is the greatest just encapsulation of this in all of the Bible. Ephesians 2.1 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. And there's no, there's no um, exceptions to this. Except for these certain holy people, or except for these people that came from this certain group or this certain clan, all of us started in this way. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, which we once walked, following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan himself, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're called here sons of disobedience. We were living for evil things among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it paints a terrible picture. But every one of us that have come to salvation in Christ know that we were there at one time. We lived in that way. We walked in that way. And we were hopeless. We could not change our own heart. We could not change our own nature. We could not deliver ourselves from this state. But in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that any person may boast. The salvation of God is by grace, and it is by grace alone. It is by the tremendous 
unthinkable mercy of God towards you and towards me, that all of our sins might be forgiven, that we might pass from being children of wrath with a nature that is bent towards sin to being regenerated, to be made new, to be given a new nature that desires new and different things and goes in a different direction. And the key thing here is that we're not boasting about it. You don't say, you know what, let me tell you how I saved myself. That is, that's, if you go to uh, any bookstore and they got the long line of self-help books, those books are all about that. Let me c- come to my conference so I can tell you how I saved myself and made myself a better person. That the salvation of Jesus Christ is not about me telling you how you can be more like me. It's me telling you how Jesus Christ saved me by forgiving my sins that I might be forgiven by mercy and grace. And I'm trying to tell you about Jesus that you too might be forgiven of your sins. Amen. But every person that harbors in their heart a hardness saying, how could God forgive that person? What they are saying really is that they still believe in some way that they are justifying themselves before God. They're saying that person does not deserve salvation, but I do. I deserve to be saved because I've worked really hard and I've done all the right stuff and so I deserve to be saved. And they're gonna come before God one day and try to give their good works and their resume to God that they might be saved. And they have not yet come face to face that all their actions are corrupt before a holy God. And only Christ could meet the perfect standard of the Lord. And so our salvation is not in any way cheap. It is freely given but it is paid for by the dear blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that the justice of God was met in the crucifixion of Christ. And the unsearchable love of God then comes and seeks us out to forgive our sins that we might be made whole in Christ Jesus. And God was willing to forgive Ahab when he repented of his sins. He's willing to forgive you when you repent of your sins. He is willing to forgive every repentant sinner that comes and believes in Christ Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, something I want to point out often, in the Old Testament, sometimes people mistakenly think that God was all anger and wrath, but it's not so. We see great forgiveness through repentance and faith here. And so what was happening? What was happening is they were looking forward to a Savior that was promised to come. And they were hoping in a Savior to come. Whereas now, when we put our faith in Christ, we are looking back to a Savior that has come and has accomplished our salvation. But either way, those that hope in God for mercy are looking to Jesus Christ. They didn't know his name in the Old Testament. We, glory to God, know his name now and are in a much better place, a much more, uh, I don't know, a place I think that is perhaps, I don't know, we just ha- we know more about Jesus, and for that, let's rejoice. Uh, we, we know his name. And so we're looking back when they were looking forward. And so I close this morning asking you, where is your heart? This passage is about people's hearts and where their hearts were. And I ask you where your heart is. Is your heart full of covetousness this morning? Are you plotting evil against someone? Are you radically discontent? and unthankful for the life that God has given you? Are you self-justifying your sin? Is your heart become hard against the things of God? Or have you repented of your sins and called out to God for mercy and in calling out to him for mercy received forgiveness 
and you today can joyfully and authentically say, I thank God for the salvation that I have. And there is a contentment and a thankfulness and a happiness in your heart that allows you to sing the songs that we sang before, allow you to go out of this place today and say to the person in your workplace that you know fits exactly the description that I'm talking about here and say to them, brother or sister, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus, that you might get past the hardness of your heart, that you might escape the covetousness and anger of your life through salvation in Jesus Christ. May we come to know Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I love you and I thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ. I thank you for this remarkable story about plotting and anger and covetousness and, and hard hearts, but then a prophet coming in and calling out sin and making known what has gone wrong, and then the great work of repentance, seeing a terrible sinner come to repentance and change their heart and their countenance, and instead of plotting, looking to God and calling out to God for mercy until you notice, until you say, look at Ahab, he's humbled himself, and there's going to be a change in consequence because of the humbling. Father, I pray for any and every person in this place that has a proud heart, exalted against God, making excuses and full of sin. Lord, I pray there would be a humbling of their heart and they would see their need for Christ. And they would look to the cross of Christ and see the suffering Jesus that has taken the penalty for our sins in his own body and that we might call out in belief and know that by grace, through faith, that our sins are forgiven and that we might have peace with God and go out no longer coveting what is not ours, but go out with contentment and thankfulness. Lord, we thank you for how you change our hearts and we pray that you would be at work changing more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.